Can you join me? Take a deep breath. <sighs> Guys, you might feel it. The struggle is real. <laughs> Anybody feel it? The struggle is real? You know, you know what I mean by that, right? The struggle is real, man. It was real for my family this week. Uh, I was in bed for almost three days with, I think, the flu this week. Anybody else? I think a couple of you were. Yeah. Um, raise your hand if you're not here because you have the flu. Right. We see you, Facebook. Um, right? And like, the struggle is real. And, and like it was real in this way in my family this week. It went, like, I think the uh, middle of last week, like my sons had something going on. And then by like Sunday afternoon, I don't know if y'all saw like my wife and my daughter after church. Um, Savannah and I led worship last Sunday. But by the end, uh, they were just like, and then they were out. They were out, man. They were gone. And I'm up. I'm like, I'm, I'm like, Mr. Dad, I'm going to take care of stuff. Boy, Tuesday morning, it punched me right in the gut. And I was out. And I was, and the struggle was real. Like, there was moments where no one wanted to get up and make food. No one wanted to wash the dishes. No one wanted to go get groceries. No one wanted to do anything. The struggle is real. So whoever's out there letting out the killer viruses again, like, if y'all could just chill out, because we all need to take a breath. And, and that's not the only reason the struggle is real. You know the struggle is real. We use this phrase all the time. It's kind of like, it's the way we laugh at ourselves when things are rough. We're like, whoa, the struggle is real, man. Couldn't find my car keys this morning. That's why I was late, right? The struggle is real. And so we get the struggle is real idea, but the, the real idea, but the, the bigger idea is this. The struggle is real. Like, life is hard. Real things happen. People lose their jobs. People get sick, like diseases. Relationships break down, and it hurts, and there's pain. And so I was curious, like, how long have people been saying that? According to dictionary.com, very esteemed source that I looked up, uh, the struggle is real. It's been around since the 90s. I don't remember saying it back then. Y'all remember saying the struggle is real in the 90s? I didn't say it. Somebody was saying it, though, according to dictionary.com. But in 2002, it really took off because of a Tupac song. It's called Fame. Now, you might know Tupac, famous rapper, genius, but the dude was, he was killed in some gang violence in 1996. You'll notice this is after his death, 2002. But he wrote this song called Fame, and it was basically this song about trying to rise up out of the mess he was in. And one, one thing he was famous for was writing about real things. I mean, just, just how life was, where he lived, and the people he lived with, and political issues, and all kind of stuff. And that's kind of the thing that stands out about him. And right in the middle of this song where he's talking about rising up out of this pain and this brokenness is this line where the struggle is real just really hits. I want to read it to you. Maybe this is something that kind of resonates with you. He said, I pray for my health, my mind, and my family too. The state of myself and my grind and my family crew. Where one hand watches the other. No, we ain't blood, but we're still brothers. The struggle is real. And then he says in the chorus, one thing we all adore. Something worth dying for. Nothing but pain. I'm stuck in this game. I'm searching for fortune and fame. And I don't know if fortune and fame is the answer to the struggle. It's not. I mean, Tupac had both, and it didn't work out great for him. But the reality is that the struggle is real, and I think we all universally understand that. We, like, we see the world around us, and we're like, is anything able to change? Like, can it be different? Can we stop struggling? We see it all over cultures. We see it all over different religions. We see it all over different worldviews. And here's the thing. Jesus himself said something similar. Check out what Jesus said. This is in John chapter 16, verse 33. He said, I've told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's talk about that this morning. Uh, today is the start of a brand new series called Live No Lies. And uh, 
You might have seen this book around. It's been uh, pretty popular for a, a few months, maybe a couple years now. You'll see it in bookstores and stuff. Uh, you'll notice the, the artwork on this book is the same as that. Some of the ideas that we're going through over the next few works, weeks are definitely out of this book. I want to encourage you to get this book. Several years ago, we did a book by the same author uh, called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Do you remember that book? It was an orange book. He's really into colorful uh, titles. Um, but uh, The Ruthless, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. And this is the same author, John Mark Comer, Live No Lies. And one thing I love about him is that he taps into ancient Christian wisdom, does a lot of research so you don't have to, and he compiles it all together. It's all based on scripture, but it's also based on things like church history and psychology and sociology and things like that. And the, the premise, the base level of this, this book begins with accepting the reality that the struggle is real. Life isn't perfect, things are going wrong, and there's a reason for that. And there's a way that we can overcome it, and there's something we can do about it. So what I want to do this morning, this is just kind of an introduction to this whole series, is I want to take some time uh, going through this struggle, and I want to take a look at what I think are just kind of three big categories of our life's struggle that are true, that are also going to land us in a really good place uh, today and also for the next three weeks. And so if you're a note taker, this would be a great time to pull that out. Normally, like, I'll, I'll tell you, hey, we're going to get in this scripture, we're going to unpack it, and you'll be in there, and you're going to be underlining. Man, we're going to go through like 10 or 15 scriptures this morning, and I'm not going to have time to let you look up all of them. So you might want to jot those down in your notes app or put them on a piece of paper or something. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to look at three big ideas about life struggle and then land on what can we do about it? How can we come to this place of peace that Jesus promises? And the first big idea is this. That the struggle steals our joy. Is that true? The struggle steals our joy. Like one way that we define or kind of articulate the struggle is through the phrase pain and suffering. Does that sound more familiar? Pain and suffering, uh, I don't want to like overanalyze it, but really this, it's kind of two sides of the, the same coin. I heard someone say once that pain is the moment, like the moment that I say, I, I stubbed my toe, for example. I had pain in the moment. I stubbed my toe, and like this, it shoots up my leg, it goes in my brain, I go, ow, right? That's pain. Pain is the moment. It's the thing. Pain is the thing. But then there's suffering. Suffering is like how the pain affects me and how I respond to it. So the moment is, ow, I stubbed my toe. Suffering is like, I'm laying on the ground, grabbing my foot, crying like a baby for an hour, right? That's, that's pain. You can, you can respond to pain in different ways. If you've ever got a splinter, like a little splinter, you're like, oh, splinter's gone, like you're not crying. Or if you've ever dealt with a three-year-old who had a splinter, you know that there's no more painful thing in the world than this splinter in my little finger. I can feel my heartbeat. Oh, I don't touch it, right? And so that's the suffering part. And so often we could remove the suffering if we could just get to the source of the pain, right? So pain and suffering is like this two-sided coin. Pain and suffering, here's the thing, guys. I, I, I'm the bearer of bad news. Pain and suffering seem to be, and according to Scripture, are inevitable. Jesus said, you will have pain. You will have struggle. It's going to be hard. Let's, almost every single biblical writer in the New Testament uh, affirms this for us. There will be pain. There will be suffering. But here's this other thing. As a result, they all give a follow-up instruction or a parallel instruction that in the suffering, you need to seek joy. So let me just look at a couple of scriptures. We're going to blast through these, but jot them down, and if you want them later, please come get me. This is a document you can have. Matthew chapter 5, 11 through 12, this is what Jesus says. He says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of things of evil against you because of me. This is where the joy comes in. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. 
So the pain and the suffering is inevitable, but it seems that joy is not inevitable. You have to choose it. Let's look at what the Apostle Paul says, Romans 5 verse 3. Not only that, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. So we rejoice. That's Romans 5 verse 3. And the, the Apostle Peter says a similar thing. 1 Peter 1 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though for now, for a little while, you may have had suffering and grieves and many trials, many kinds of trials. James 1, 2 through 4, this is like the granddaddy of the suffering passages. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that testing of your faith produces perseverance. And so you let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and lacking nothing. Suffering is inevitable. It's going to happen. It's interesting to me because we, we want to battle with God about this. Like, God, why would you allow this to happen? But I often wonder why we feel like we have the right to question God's uh, like creative liberties, right? He's like, this is how I allowed the world to be. So what we do know, I don't know why. I don't know why. I've asked. I've wondered. But what I do know is that he allows us to encounter suffering. What I also know is he gives us the option of choosing joy. Now, this isn't a sermon about joy. We preached on joy a lot of times. We're going to do it in, in the future. Uh, we did it at Christmas. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a big deal, joy. But what I want you to know is this. The struggle steals our joy. That's the first big idea. The struggle steals our joy. But you can fight back. You don't have to sit in the suffering. You don't have to just sit there and wallow in it like the three-year-old with the splinter. You can do something different than just suffer. And so that's the first thing. This is kind of just kind of this observation about the struggle. The second struggle is this. The struggle is a war. The struggle is a war. You know, uh, as modern, sophisticated Westerners, Americans, I think we got it in our mind that if we could just get rid of... Uh, the pain, the suffering, the struggle, if we could just make that go away, everyone would be happy. And we, we might not like, you might be like, well, obviously that's not true. But that's how we treat things. We're like, if we could just get rid of hunger, then all the children would be happy. If we could just cure all the diseases, then we would all just be happy. Right? If I could just make these people quit making these political commercials so that I can just watch Jeopardy with my family in the evenings and not have to feel so guilty about whatever you're yelling at me about. Right? Like, if we could just take the suffering away, then everybody'd be happy. But the reality is that our world doesn't function that way. Like, there's there's other forces involved. And so it's the ancient Christians knew that there were much higher stakes than just being happy. They knew there was something much deeper to the problem than this. You know what they called the struggle? They call it a war. They call it a battle. Like, I think so often, especially in our Christian circles, and I've been in groups where we're, like, being accountable about certain sins and addictions and things like that. You, you know what we tend to call it? When we fall into, like, a, a really bad addiction, like, it could break up your marriage or kill you. <laughs> and sometimes we're like, yeah, yeah, I've been struggling with this. Like, it's like a struggle. You know, it's like a, it's kind of a heavy backpack. I mean, I can make it. But, like, the early Christians didn't call it a struggle at all. They called it battle. They called it war. And we're too modern and sophisticated to think that, like, there might be spiritual reasons for our physical problems. But, man, under the surface, we are spiritual beings. Our world is a spiritual place. 
And so it's no surprise, it shouldn't be a surprise to us when you look as when Jesus hits the scene and when his followers begin to understand and unpack and kind of like decode the world around them, that they found that it was the spiritual problems that were leading to their physical problems. And that's why these like, the early church, in fact, the church today, were like so pacifist, okay? These are people who didn't, they didn't, they didn't do war. Okay, Jesus, Jesus was like all about some nonviolence. Put your swords away and like speak with your words and love, right? So how did these, these pacifist, nonviolent people talk so much about war? Well, they did. Look at it, 1 Timothy 6, 12. That all of these are from the Apostle Paul, but he says this to his disciple Timothy. He says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life which you were called when you, were made, when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Fight the good fight. It's a fight. He says again there in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, this is a big passage about war. In 6 uh, verse 11, he teaches us to put on the full armor of God so that we can take our stand against the devil's scheme. We're wearing armor. And he's going to go on into this like extended metaphor about armor and all this stuff. But when you get to verse 12, listen to this. This is like a pivotal, crucial verse to understanding the struggle. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers and the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What's causing the pain? What's causing the suffering? What's causing the struggle? Under the surface, behind the veil, is an army of spiritual evil coming at you. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-4, uses that same war language. It says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war the way the world does. But the weapons we fight with are not weapons of this world. Listen what they can do. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. What kind of strongholds? Forts, castles, trenches? Nah. Spiritual strongholds. Places where the enemy locks in. And holds us captive. You know the story of Paul Revere, right? Hopefully. You remember that? This is like, I don't know, high school history. This is revolutionary war stuff. So you probably know the story. But let me just remind you what happens. Paul Revere is this dude who, like, the British are, are, are camped out in Boston. And the whole idea is, like, they might be coming out into the countryside to attack the people. And so there's this whole setup. And finally, uh, Paul Revere realizes, like, okay, the, the army, the British army is about to attack the, the colonial troops. And so he gets on his horse. And it's the middle of the night. And he rides into Lexington, Massachusetts. And what does he scream while he's riding down the road? Y'all tell me. The British are coming. The British are coming. You did watch Schoolhouse Rock as a kid. Okay, and so the British are coming. The British are coming. And he rolls into Lexington and eventually ends up all the way in another place called Concord. And he goes out there. And the people are inside. And they're like, ah. And they wake up from a dead sleep. And there's a militia men that have to get together. And I guess the civilians get safe. And, and eventually the British forces do come. And there's a big battle there. Okay, that's the story. Now, it would be terrible if you were sleeping in your bed tonight. And someone came banging on your door. The enemy's coming. The enemy's coming. They got cannons and guns and horses, and they're going to come and take all the food out of your pantries, and they're going to come and steal your flocks and your, your cattle, and they're going to take over our land. The enemy's coming. The enemy's coming. It would be terrible to wake up from a dead sleep, right, and to hear that. Wouldn't it be? Well, can you put yourself in this, the shoes of those people? But you know what would be worse? Nobody warns you. You're just sleeping in your bed, and the enemy kicks down the door and takes all your food, and attacks your family. I, I, don't, I don't 
want to know that there's spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to think that maybe my kids are in danger when I let them get on the internet on their own without any supervision uh, when they were very young or even as older people that I could be subject to anything that comes into the portal of my TV. I, I don't want to believe that there are people out there that just want to hurt me and hurt other people. I don't want to believe that. But the enemy's coming. There's spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. And let me just very clearly say this. I want to always make sure. I love Ephesians chapter 6. It says, your battle is not against flesh and blood. And so, yeah, there might be people out there trying to do us ill. There might be, uh, you know, organizations and, and corporations. And, yeah, may, maybe they in some ways can be classified as the bad guys or whatever. But, man, it's, it's not them. There's evil behind it. Spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. And that's what these scriptures make me think of. Like Paul ringing the bell. Hey, guys, put on the full armor of God. Ding, 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 ding. The enemy is coming. Prepare yourself. The struggle is a war. I want to read an excerpt from John Mark Comer's book, Live No Lies, here. He says, our generation, listen to this. He's talking to us, okay? Our generation has a low comfort level with military metaphors and faith. We prefer to think of following Jesus as a journey, a lifestyle, rather than a war. But our spiritual ancestors did not share our reticence with war imagery. They were far more adroit at naming the reality of the spiritual conflict that we are in today. The struggles of war. I've touched on the first two big ideas I want to touch on. The, the struggle steals our joy. It's true. But you can fight back. And the struggle is a war. And to get at this third idea, or to get us to this third idea, which is this. The struggle is about truth. The struggle is about truth. Our study is live no lies. Okay? So keep that in mind as we wrap this up. The real war is between truth and lies. And that's where we're going to hang out in the next three weeks. In his book, John Mark Comer outlines uh, this ancient wisdom. So he didn't make this up. He just kind of pulled it back to the surface so we could look at it again. Ancient brothers and sisters came up with this idea that there are three uh, enemies to our spiritual lives. And they named them like this. Well, they, they didn't name them these things. These are kind of the modern words that we're going to use throughout this series. But we're going to call them the devil, the flesh, and the world. The devil, the flesh, and the world. These are the three enemies uh, that, that, that come at our truth with, with lies. Uh, he states it this way. He says that we live in deceptive ideas, which he calls the devil, that play to disordered desires, which we call the flesh, that are normalized in a sinful society called the world. Take, take a look at that. Just take a second to, to take that in. So there are deceptive ideas coming into our minds all the time. The book of James says that we are drawn away and enticed when by our own sinful de desires we, we, be, we begin to fall into sin. And so the ancients called this the devil. We're going to talk about the devil next week. And so I don't know if you believe in the devil. Jesus sure did. Um, so we're going to talk about what that, that means. Um, but there are, there are ideas. These are deceptive ideas. And they play on disordered desires. Have you ever had an idea, like something in your mind you just couldn't stop thinking about? Like, you, you knew it was bad. You might have known it was bad for you, or you might have known it was, like, sinful. 
And, but it just it seemed to have like a life of its own. Do you know what I mean? Like you just keep doing it. Like it's an evil thing or a mean thing or a sinful thing. And you're like, I don't want to do this. But it's like, shoot. And there's something in that. There's these deceptive ideas. And then they kind of manifest through our desire to do it. A disordered desire. I kind of like it. I kind of like the thing that's bad for me. I kind of like the thing that I know if I got caught, I would lose my job. I kind of like the thing that I knew if I got caught, I would lose my marriage. But we just live in it. These are disordered desires, and we're going to talk about that the second week. And then they're normalized in a sinful society. So we justify it all the time. Well, it's not that bad. I mean, everybody else is doing it, right? You know, they're doing it. They're doing it. I mean, why? it's not that bad, right? I mean, they're real bad. They're real bad. Those people, they're real bad. But our disordered desires are normalized by a sinful society. And so, like, this is philosophical stuff, right? But what I want to do is bring it down to a really, really relatable level over the next few weeks so that we can learn to combat the devil, the flesh, and the world in our life. And so what I want to do in the time we have left is just talk about truth. Truth. Um, I said that the struggle is about truth. And this is kind of like the big take-home sentence for today if you want one. We must learn to be grounded in truth and to live no lies. Like that, at, at the core, in this world, you will have problems. <laughs> like that's going to happen. Jesus promised it. But if we want to learn to overcome that to find joy, to overcome that to find peace instead of war, and to find truth instead of lies, we've got to learn to live no lies. We must learn to be grounded in truth and live no lies. Because the driving fuel behind this spiritual battle is, uh, is these evil spiritual forces, and their language, we're going to learn like next week, is lies. Devil, the devil's called the father of lies, and he only speaks lies. And so what he does is he takes God's good world, and what he tries to do is reform it in his own image. And God says, marriage is this. And the evil one says, no, 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 it's not exactly that, exactly, for sure. It's actually, it's actually more like this. And paints it as a lie. Loving people looks like this. Well, I mean, not really. Not really doesn't look like that exactly. It looks a little bit more like this. And he paints it as a lie. And we begin to replace the truths with lies over and over again. But Jesus brought truth. When Jesus was about to be crucified, he met before Pontius Pilate, who was the governor of the area at the time. And he was the one who kind of had the power of life and death in his hands for Jesus. In John chapter 18, verse 36 Pilate's questioning him. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. And then Pilate said, so you are a king. Jesus said, yeah, you say I'm a king. And for this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, which is an echo of something he said back in chapter 8, John chapter 8, uh, verse 31 and 32. He says, if you hold to my teachings, you're my real disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The struggle is about truth. And we're going to talk about that a lot more as we get through this series. But the whole idea is like Jesus says, if you want to know the truth, you need to hold to my teachings. Then you can call yourself a disciple of mine. A lot of times as, as the church, capital C, we're like, well, you're a disciple if you attend church. 
You're a disciple if you go to a small group. You're a disciple if on your Facebook profile or whatever, you're bold enough to put faith, Christian. Jesus says, no, you're, you're a disciple if you live by my teachings. A disciple is a learner. That's what the word means, or a follower. Jesus is the teacher or the rabbi. So ask yourself this question, like, who is your teacher? Who is guiding your life? What helps you make your decisions? The goal of faith in Jesus is to be transformed by the knowledge that he brings into our life, by his presence in our life, by his spirit moving among us. What does the truth set us free from? I mean, the truth sets us free from so many things. Here's one. The truth sets us free from the lies that surround your identity. I mean, so many people live a life with low self-esteem. I'm worthless. I'm a loser. I'm, I'm poor. I'll never rise above my station. I can't do it. You know what God's truth is? You're a child of mine, created in my image, with purpose. I love you. We let society define our identities. And he's like, who are they? I'm your creator. The truth sets us free from the lies that we believe about who we even are. The truth sets us free from the lies that shape our priorities. How do you prioritize your life? Most of us prioritize our life based around a clock and a calendar, and then probably based on like some order of this. What does my boss tell me to do? What does my spouse tell me to do? And what are my kids telling me to do? That's more or less how we prioritize our life. And that is so upside down. All of those things should be subject to what Jesus is in, in requiring you to do. But the only way we can get there is to pour them in and to be connected. How many people believe that money and fame and a big house and a nicer car is actually a mark of the value of your life? It is not. It is not. You know, something I've, I've heard a couple of more times. I, we never really heard this a lot. Uh, we were the, I guess, the cool young church at the YMCA for a long time. Now we're 10 years old and have a building, and I think people, and we have red chairs in an auditorium. So, you know, like, I think there's a, a level of traditionalism people are curious about when they come to church, and I've met several people, particularly, and you guys who live in the neighborhood here, spread the word. We're casual here, okay? But I've met several people right here in the neighborhood who's like, I can't come to church because I don't know if I have the right outfit. Man, whoever started that lie hundreds of years ago, they should be ashamed of themselves. Check out the people Jesus hung out with the most. They probably smell way worse and dress way worse than anybody in Wilmington. And I'm not even exaggerating that. These people didn't even go home and take a bath ever, okay? This is not a requirement for interacting with the family of God, what you look like, how you dress. And if you come here proud of yourself because of how you look, shame on you. That's not what this is about at all. But those are the lies we believe in. The, lie, the truth can reshape our priorities, they say the community of God is about uh, lifting one another up, about carrying each other's burdens, about praying for one another, about helping people who are far from God come close to God, right? About helping each other raise each other's kids because it's hard out there. The struggle is real. <laughs> Those are the truths that set us free. Parents, man, I'm going to tell you what, if your priorities are to pour into your kid's academic life and athletic career instead of their spiritual life, they will get a scholarship, but they may walk away from the church when they're an adult. Because we've got to prioritize the spiritual things in our families. Those other things are very valuable. God can use all of those things in their life, but man, the truth will set us free 
from those lies. And then the biggest thing, I mean, it could be a list. We could do a two-hour sermon on the truths that set us free. But the biggest thing is this, that sets us free from our slavery to sin. I mean, because of Jesus, first his act of coming to the world, the death, burial, and resurrection, and his words, which we find in Scripture, we can be saved and transformed by Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 is that the new, you're a new creation. The old is gone. The new is here. That's why it matters. That's why the struggle is about truth. Because it actually determines like who you are and how you interact with the world. Have you ever gotten bad directions? And someone gave you directions. So I went, uh, I think a couple years ago, and I was trying to pick up some firewood for somebody. And this guy was like, oh, I got some firewood. But when I went in country, uh, I, was in, uh, I was in Beaufort County, North Carolina. That's a lot of my roots are out there. And they were like, oh, I got, I got some firewood. Here's what you do. You're going to go on down this highway. And then he gives directions that sound just like, you know, the old Andy Griffith show stuff. It's like, you're going to pass this type of tree and this many barns and this many roads. And, like, I'm like, I'm trying my best. And the truth is, that was the best directions. Like, I, there wasn't enough internet to get a map point out there. So we're just, we're just trying, right? So, like, I'm remember. okay, there's, like, this many oak trees and this many barns and this many left turns. But, like, I remember passing, like, the third or fourth oak tree and being like, okay, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. We're just driving. So I ended up in this guy's driveway, and I just pull up, and he's out mowing his grass. I was like, hey, man, look, uh, okay, I'm, I'm turned around. Uh, and I told him, like, what I was looking for. This guy's got some firewood. Maybe you know him. I don't know. You know people with firewood? Like, I'm out there talking to this guy. And I give him these directions. Dude, he was a champ. He answered my question like he answers this question every single day. He was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You probably, well, here's what you want to do. And he just gave me directions. Sure enough, dude, I landed, I landed at what was called uh, the sand lot. And I got to the land. There was a pile of wood, and I put it in my truck. Now, to this day, I still hope it's the wood I was supposed to take. <laughs> but I left with a pile of wood. Here's the thing, guys. When we get bad directions, we end up in the wrong place. That's what lies do to us. I don't think anyone's trying to get me lost, right? But you get it. And you've been lost and you've been frustrated when someone told you something that wasn't true, whether they meant to or not. But man, truth gets you to the goal. It gets you to the thing you're trying to achieve, the thing that you're trying to accomplish. And that's progress in our spiritual walk. The struggle is real. Instead of breaking down uh, a lot of big scripture today, what we did was you just we just made the points, right? We just looked at it. And we're going to get into some big text next week, but I want to close with one more scripture. And this is what I want to encourage you to turn your Bibles to. This is Philippians uh, chapter 4. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. Do I have that back there? All one? Do I do 6 through 9? Is that what I have? Does it start with rejoicing the Lord always? Maybe 4 through 9. I don't have Philippians back there. All right, I'm just going to read it to you. I made this change last night, so. I didn't make the change in the prayer presenter. So listen along with me because this is what the Apostle Paul is, um, I'm starting at verse 4. This is what the Apostle Paul is teaching when it comes to truth. And I also love that he talks about joy. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And so don't, do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, 
whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have heard or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Jesus said, I told you these things so that you may have peace. In the world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray together.